He made his producing debut off-Broadway in 1999 with the long-running The Donkey Show and followed up a year later with the Broadway revival of The Rocky Horror Show. His other credits include The Mambo Kings and the acclaimed A Catered Affair, and now he has become head of one of the major theater owners on Broadway, with the authority to affect the lives not only of the shows he chooses to produce, but the shows produced by many others. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm very pleased to welcome the president of Jujamson Theaters, Jordan Roth. Thank you. Hi, Howard. Now... We're going to spend a lot of time talking about what I would refer to as your day job, but I want to talk about <laughs> I want to talk about your newest venture because you've just um, launched your career as a moderator and uh, and host of the new series Broadway Talks at the Ninety Second Street Y, and we're recording this uh, just a couple of days after you did your first talk with Liev Schreiber. Yes, indeed. how'd that go? It was a, it was a wonderful night. Um, Liev was. Deeply generous uh, in sharing his insights and his ideas and his feelings um, about A View from the Bridge, which he is currently starring in, in a magnificent, magnificent production. Um, so he talks quite a bit about about that experience as well as, as uh, other projects that he's worked on. Everything is Illuminated, the film that he wrote and directed. Um, and his perspective on acting and the theater and film, uh, and it was a really interesting and uh, an exciting evening for all of us. Well, I want to know how it went for you because it can be sometimes daunting. I don't know if in your background you've had occasion, you know, to do this to suddenly be in front of an audience of at the Ninety Second Street Y, something like six hundred or more people. Um, all eager to hear what's going on, and you're running the show. Uh, so, so we know we know Liev uh, is 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 a great talker and a great thinker about the work that he does. But but how was it for you? Um, I'll tell you, it felt great. It, it um, I understood early on that it was about the preparation, um, and so I knew that if I felt prepared and I felt. Um, uh, very well versed in his work and his history, uh, that it would be a free flowing dialogue, and, and indeed it was. Uh, I got some good advice about preparation. It, um- I do this program, obviously, without an audience. Sometimes when you're in front of an audience, you're never quite sure what you're going to get back. Um, what Was it a responsive audience, or did they really sit and listen to the two of you talking? Oh, it was a very responsive audience. Um, you know, I think one of the things that the 92nd Street Y is known for is being really a, a, um, a center of uh, the cultural discourse in, our, in New York City and beyond um, – in certainly in the arts, but also in politics and culture and other other um, fields, and so the audience um, was very responsive and and very engaged in in what we were talking about, but also listening quite intently. Um, and it, it felt like a good room. You know, it's what we hope for in the theater that it's it's really the exchange between what's go- the ener- exchange of energy between what's going on on stage and and what's going on in the audience. And um, I, a conversation like that is no different. How'd you get the gig? You know, very soon after um, uh, I became president of Jujamson, um, the 92nd Street Y called and said, uh, we, we used to have a Broadway series and uh, we haven't in some time and we'd love to revive it and would you consider hosting it? And... I said, that sounds kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, and, and we then went about inviting, inviting our, our first uh, season of guests. And here we are. So well, that was going to be my next question. So you were involved in selecting. We should say the, the guests for this season will also include Nathan Lane, Laura Linney, and Sean Hayes. Yes, indeed. So Laura was- Linney is coming up next. Mm-hmm. But uh, but you were involved in the discussions about who who you'd be talking to. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's it, the idea was people that I would have some. Um, I don't want to say interest in because I have interest in in so many people on Broadway, really. But um, that I'd be able to have a dialogue with that would be. 
uh, revealing or, or interesting or exciting for our audiences. And are these folks you knew beforehand? Uh, some and some. <laughs> um, I, had, I had not met, with, met or, or worked with Liev before. Um, so we met just before the, the, our discussion and we talked a bit backstage and felt quite comfortable together. Um, again, as I said, I, I had prepared, so I knew quite a bit about him. Um, Sean, I know, Sean Hayes. Uh, so it's a mix of people that I've know and don't know, and that's part of the fun. Well, I think I'd like to go chronologically through your, your theater right. career. We'll start because at the beginning. Now we'll, we'll start at the beginning. The um, well, why did you just suddenly shout out Sound of Music? <laughs> start at the very beginning. A very fine place to start. <laughs> okay. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me it was, the, it was the first play you saw and it's what inspired oh, no. you to theater. <laughs> <laughs> the Alps changed my life. Um, when did the theater bug bite you? When did you, when did you start really thinking this was something you wanted to do? Um, I think it's something that's always been in me, for me. Um, for as long as I can remember, I went to the theater, certainly uh, with my family. That was our outings um, to, to come to a Broadway show and have lunch. Um, and I think like so many families, that's a really special part of... of our, our time together. Um, and so from as long as, for as long as I can remember, really, we were coming to the theater. Um, and I think for many kids, as was true for me, when you're excited about the theater and you're interested in the theater, you start performing. Because um, that's really, there are very few first grade lighting designers, but there's lots of first grade actors and singers because that's sort of what you do. Um, and then you, uh, as, as happened for me, you, you continue and, and I figured out that acting and performing was really not where my passion was, um, but was still very much in the theater. When did you figure that out? Uh, towards the end of college. Um, okay, well then let's not go past that. Okay, we're you staying with to, chronology. Well, let's, no, just to say, you know, you went to Princeton. I did. You majored in philosophy, minored mm-hmm. in theater. Yeah, but there's not. You can't major in theater at Princeton. Correct. The the um, it, it, they, they, we call it a program, but it's akin to a minor, um, and it's really one of the reasons why I I was excited about going to Princeton is that I I knew I wanted to be very active in the theater, but I also knew that I wasn't done yet with my academic work. And I was very concerned that uh, if I went to a school with a big theater department, if I wasn't a major, I'd be number 274th on the list to be able to participate behind all the students who were majors. Um, So what was a perfect fit for me about Princeton is it's a very active um, arts uh, environment, arts community, but it is for the most part extracurricular. The performances. There's certainly lots of classes in um, the- dramatic literature or theater history, um, and certainly now the arts programming is developing at Princeton in a fantastic way with the new Lewis Center for the Arts um, that's really going to transform the campus. Uh, but it will remain not a major, and I think that's a really important distinction for this university. Um, so, you, what you had was history majors and English majors and philosophy majors and engineers and pre med, uh, all in a show together, and it made for um, a very fertile exchange uh, and, and a, a very dynamic intellectually rigorous environment uh, of theater. So now we'll say, but you came to the feeling that you were not a performer, but presumably you've been performing in shows at Princeton. Yes, that, uh, I per- performed in shows all growing up uh, and, and very actively at Princeton. Um, and for me... The, that started to be less and less satisfying. Um, 
I think I, I, I connect that a fair amount to my own personal process of coming out, um, which for me was in sophomore year. Um, and what I found, I think in retrospect, I don't know if I was keenly aware of, of the specifics, uh, as they were happening to me, but I think that as I start, as I became more and more, uh, comfortable with my own self and my own body and my own voice, um, both literally, literally and figuratively, I started to become less and less interested in taking on those of another. Hmm. Um, and I think that curiosity of inhabiting another being is essential for the actor. Hmm. Um, and that that process, which had been so satisfying to me and such a thrill to me uh, when I was younger, started to become less, much less satisfying. Interesting that it wasn't, as some people might say, you know, I don't think I'm cut out for this or, you know, I see the other people. In your case, it was it was just the process. You just didn't want to act anymore. Correct. So at that point, as you're getting out of school, um, did you know what was next? I mean, at no. this point, <laughs> I mean, at this point, we should acknowledge. I assume that your mother, Dara Roth, mm-hmm. a prolific producer, had begun her producing career. She did. She started producing uh, when I was twelve. Okay, so you had a model in the family of another way to go in theater. Yes. But did you instantly – but you, it seems you indicated that you didn't immediately come out of school and say, I'm going to be a producer. Well, I'll tell you, it sounds ridiculous to say because my mother was um, firmly engaged in her career. It didn't occur to me. Huh. Um, it didn't occur to me – that I might be a producer um, until I started doing it. Um, I know it sounds ridiculous. Um, but what happened was I, I got out of college. Uh, I came back to the city. Um, and a dear friend of mine from college, her sister, uh, was an actor. And she was involved in a small theater company um, making these crazy, fantastic hybrid shows um, in alternative spaces. Uh, And I'd go see some of their work just to support her. And one day she started talking to me about this idea they were working on. It was Midsummer Night's Dream, but they were going to tell it all through disco hits. And she's going to be wearing pasties. And I just thought, this sounds fascinating. I got to check this out. And they they were... developing it um, in front of an audience in a sort of workshop type setting on the, on the Lower East Side. And I went and I fell in love with it. And I and I started talking to the people involved in it and we started talking about, you know, it, it was disco, but because of its setting, it was garage disco Aesthetic as opposed to 54 disco aesthetic. Um, I'm not sure I've ever heard the term garage disco. Well, just um, sweatsuit jumpsuit versus gold glitter. Okay. Um, And we started – and so that then spoke to a different kind of a space – so I started pounding the pavement and looking for a space that would be an aesthetic fit uh, and also the right size. And I kind of fell into it. I started producing it. And this show became The Donkey Show, which was my first. You say you fell in, you know, you fell into producing it. You began to produce it. I mean, was there a point at which you said to the creative people, okay, I want to. I want to be in charge. I'm prepared to... Oh, absolutely. To- and by, by, I, 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 by fall into it, I don't mean like, oh, I don't didn't know that I was producing it. What I mean is more I didn't set out to be a producer and then go look for a show to produce. Mm-hmm. It was this show 
that I wanted to produce. Um, and I didn't necessarily think that made me a producer for the rest of my life or huh. even the foreseeable future. Um, it was very much, you know, I was a, a year out of college. It was very much a a project thing rather than a career trajectory mm-hmm. thing. Now, again, with with a model and a resource in the family, how much did you turn to either your mother or some of your mother's associates, who I assume you you knew a bit, to say help me with this or were you really doing this based solely on how the piece was developing and what you absorbed? Oh, um, both. I think everybody should when they are starting out and even when they're not starting out, avail themselves of all the resources and all the uh, knowledge and experiences around them. Um, what was unique about the donkey show at that time was it was not really like a lot of other things. That's what I found so appealing about it. Um, so why it became such a great education for me um, was it, it's, it wasn't a prescribed economic model that you would then slot in the specifics of this show too, like we do on most shows. Um, um, the the economic model is of of theater is something that is pretty well established. Um, but doing a show outside of that, you have to then create it. You and your collaborators create the model. Um, and creating a model requires then looking, breaking down each piece that is a part of it and then gathering information. How, would, how does this work in the theater normally? How does this work in nightclub normally? How does this work in other kinds of live experiences normally? And then take all of that information and make a decision for what makes sense for this show. So it's a very deliberate process. And... The result of it is you comb through the whole business um, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily have to um, if you were working in a, in a more well-worn uh, economic model. Was there something or some things that were ultimately big surprises for you in putting the show together? All of it. <laughs> totally. Um, it was an hourly surprise fest. Um, um, it's very it, – it, it's very hard. It's, it's um, thrilling and frustrating and surprising and deeply fulfilling uh, and can tear your hair out. <laughs> well, so the next question is, you say you – again, I'm going to use the phrase, not that it was a complete accident, but you fell into this. It was connections to people you knew, the show was developing and at a point it evolved to where you were the producer. The next project, only a year later, was Rocky Horror, which was in a – pre-existing theater, a script, and indeed a, you were reviving a fairly well-known piece of material in a conventional theater for a Broadway run. What was that transition like? Mm-hmm. Because there you had – you refer to economic model. I'll say in some cases economic strictures or economic expectations, which are, again, to use your words, well-worn. Indeed. Um, so Rocky Horror creatively for me emerged – very much emerged from my experience with The Donkey Show. The Donkey Show um, uh, was an, an event, an experience. It was set in a nightclub. People uh, – the, the actors in the audience were very commingled. Um, we were creating an environment in which our audience could explore. Um, and I will say, 
a shout out to ART. The Donkey Show is now in performance uh, in Boston at the ART. Uh, and it was a thrilling thing to go and revisit it 10 years later. Hmm. Um, and it has that same kind of effect on the audience. Uh, we were very inspired by Rocky Horror in creating The Donkey Show. Um, Rocky Horror is the mothership of the environmental experience, the uh, cult hit, the uh, live entertainment that is fueled by its audience's passion and energy for the piece, people coming dressed up, people in- interacting with the action. Yet that's something that developed from the movie. It wasn't yes. the experience of the original stage show. Yes. But the movie then morphed back to a live experience with the floor shows being performed in front of them, in front of the screens. And then, and certainly uh, the show, let's call it, uh, was happening just as much in the audience. And what the audience was, how the audience was dressed and what the audience was singing and saying as it was uh, in uh, on the screen. So it was really the the totality of the Rocky Horror experience that we drew on and and took inspiration from. So then, uh, once the donkey show was up and running and I started to look at, am I doing this again? And if so, what? Um, Going back to the mothership was sort of, um, uh, had great appeal. And originally, uh, the con- the idea for the Rocky Horror Show would be what was that it would be a sort of Uber Donkey Show, a night cl- a major nightclub experience um, of the Rocky Horror Show. Um, we started, you know, a- a- every production I think has to be held to a a standard. Its creative team has to hold it to a standard um, of why. Why are we doing this? Why does this have to be seen? Why does this need to be on stage? Um, why do we need this now? Um, and for Rocky, uh, it, 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 it was a complicated discussion or series of discussions or ideas because there already was a way to experience this show live, this, this, this uh, event live. Um, so what is this show that is different from that? Why? And each of the, the um, answers that we came to started to require scale. So physically, you had never experienced the live uh, event like this, the physical production. So that requires scale. Um, you had never heard it sung like this before. That maybe requires a level of talent that might be less interested in a, uh, a nightclub experience but would be interested in a larger venue. Um, the, certainly, we were very clear from the beginning that we weren't just doing the Rocky Horror Show. We were doing the Rocky Horror Show plus the 25 years of the Rocky Horror Experience. That that is what we were reviving. Um, and so that started to uh, – we became very interested in a sort of pop culture mashup of uh, cast members and stars. And so that too started to require uh, – a venue that could attract that level of talent. And all of these things pointed us towards a Broadway production. Well, you keep saying we. At what point, since you say this started as an Uber donkey show mm-hmm. you know, in a nightclub, at what point did you begin engaging the, re- the creative team? Because certainly you ended up with Chris Ashley and, if I remember correctly, David Rockwell designing. Yes, and, indeed. Um, so – were you and all, Jerry Mitchell choreographing? Right. So, were you all working on it for this one venue and collectively decided, or was it you, the producer, 
saying, you know, I think I now need to bring on people who have this kind of experience. I, I think it evolved um, uh, it evolved into a larger production as I was assembling the creative team and certainly in the, in the discussions with potential creative team members. Um, um, so I think by the time we were fully assembled as a team, it was clear where we were heading. Um, but the genesis of the idea very much informed the production. So we weren't, we, we were not doing a show in a proscenium box. We were doing a, an environment in which our audiences could come and have the experience that they wanted to have. Um, and that's a much harder thing to accomplish on Broadway because um, for many people, the rules of theater going are quite clear and firm. Um, you know, we sit, we're bolted to the floor, we clap at the end. Um, and if you're going to invite an audience to have a different kind of experience, to loosen those rules, to say, we're going to create a space for you, you engage however you wish. Um, you need to cue that uh, in many different ways. So, you know, how, how the room feels when you first walk in, what do you see? How are you greeted? What does it smell like? What what are you hearing? Um, all of the ways in which you can cue, this is a different kind of experience. Yes, because certainly, as you say, there's 25 years of people having a vision of Rocky Horror, which was at least an outgrowth of the original production that had grown, but the, the concept, the designs had had expanded from the original stage production. You you couldn't do everything the movie did. You, I mean, I imagine maybe you could have designed a giant pair of lips to sing the opening song, but that's not what the stage version was. Well, it's also, um, I mean, I think this speaks to an even larger uh, discussion of theater is its own medium. We do, uh, and, and, and so when we're when we're telling stories in the theater, I think it's this, it's uh, required. It's crucial that we are using the tools that are essentially theatrical, that are um, unique to this form of storytelling, as a, as opposed to any other form of storytelling. That's where we come up with the unique live experience. That's why it's theater. When you talk about the environment that you created for Rocky Horror, if I remember correctly, it was David Rockwell's first Broadway design. It was. So, again, had a you, wonderful used, experience. you used an un- but you used an unconventional choice. You used an architect who was particularly known for interior space design, of restaurants, of, of things like that. And my recollection on seeing Rocky Horror as the set literally at times unfolded <laughs> was that I had never seen Circle in the Square Theater utilized in that way. Thank you. Which was which was pretty remarkable. So it it just was a new way of using the space. Yes. And that's exactly um you know, you talked about you, you, you I guess we both talked about the well worn model. Sometimes it requires turning a space on its head or turning an idea on its head um, to get something new that, that feels uh, dynamic. So working ultimately in the pre-existing Broadway model, not creatively, but the HOW week, the unions, all of those issues – Coming out of Rocky Horror, did you find the experience satisfying or did you find it frustrating since you'd created your own Both. structure? Both. Absolutely. Can, can you explain? Um, um, uh, 
can I explain? <laughs> um, I think you know it's it can be very comforting, uh, very not comforting. Um, a completely blank page is can be thrilling and very frustrating. So, in many ways, it is it can be useful to have some some holes that you fill. These, this is the size of the hole. This is what you need to fill it. Done. Um, in other ways, you sort of say, you know, but I'd really love a triangular hole for this one. Um, and sometimes you can achieve the triangle and sometimes it's just going to stay a square. Um, and so the fact that you have the holes is satisfying. The fact that they are not quite the shape you want is frustrating. Um, and I think I've banged this metaphor into the floor. <laughs> so let's let's move on and and ask. You first went to Jujamson Theaters um, and came on as a vice president, correct? At first as resident producer, okay, and then as a vice president. So how did that relationship? Evolve and exactly when did that begin? Um, I think I, f- I first came to the company about four and a half years ago, um, and the idea was that I would, um, uh, with a, a really wonderful and talented team of people uh, that is the Jujamson family, um, continue to work on. Uh, developing shows, but also really um, bringing shows into our theaters, uh, whether they be our productions or not. Um, and and that began for me an entirely different relationship to shows that I find thrilling. Um, it's a it's a it's a different experience to to bring a show into the, into the theater and be the house uh, than it is to produce the show. Uh, and I have found it no less satisfying. Hmm. When you're at the house, yes, and not to use the, the old metaphor of the house always wins, um, <laughs> but do you, you don't necessarily have the same degree of creative control over what's in your house. You ultimately believe in not only the creative people, but the producers who are, who are themselves creative people. Absolutely. And that they are going to do the best work possible to ensure that you keep the house lit for as long as possible with that show. So, And that's equally rewarding to you as having the idea of the show and putting it together and seeing it happen. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's it is. It's a different kind of relationship to shows. It expands it expands the way in which we can engage with a show. Um and I believe that the house, the space, I I wouldn't say house, the space is um a crucial collaborator on the storytelling. Um, that was very, I mean, as we've discussed, certainly in Donkey Show and Rocky Horror, that was uh, fundamental to my early explorations. Um, and I still believe that. Um, sometimes it's it's more deliberate than others. You know, you, you come to a show like Fela and... The space is transformed, and it is a unique environment that hits you the second you walk in the door, what it looks like, what it sounds like, um, the energy in the air. And you can very quickly identify that the space is helping tell this story. In other shows, it may not be as clear um, but I think that it is um, equally important. Um, okay. Now, because I may have it slightly off in, in the timing, 
if you say it's about four and a half years ago. So Mambo Kings was a production that preceded your going Correct. on staff at Jude Jamson. Correct. Mambo Kings was a show that was worked on out of town. The decision was made not to go forward with it. It was, frankly, as your mother, who was also involved in the show, has said on this program, a very painful experience. And you had had some very happy experiences. Did did Mambo Kings color your desire or approach to what was next for you in theater? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think I think we take all of these experiences with us. Um, so I would have to say absolutely. Um, all of the shows that I've worked on, I think, affect how I think about the next ones. Um, Mambo Kings was deeply painful for everybody involved um, because you come together as a family to tell a story and when it doesn't work out the way you hoped it would, um, it's it's very painful um, for everybody. So absolutely, that um, that comes with you. Um, but it didn't deter you. No, no. Um, I should have a better answer for why not. But <laughs> I actually didn't ask why not. It was merely a statement. It didn't deter you. So, so, so let's go on. So you've come in house at Chujamson. Um, Catered Affair was developed while you were at Jujamson, but it was a project that you led. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you come to Catered Affair and and what was the experience of, of bringing that to fruition as both the producer and the house? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you that's really fun. Producing – producer being the producer and the house, that's really fun. Um, so Catered Affair came about, uh, my boyfriend, Richie Jackson, um, was Harvey Firestein's longtime agent and then, uh, manager. Uh, he's now, uh, a manager as well as, uh, the executive producer of Nurse Jackie. Um, so he has, his career has evolved in, in really exciting ways, um, and he and Harvey had a over 20-year collaboration. Um, and so I, of course, uh, knew Harvey and loved Harvey. Uh, and he was beginning to – not beginning to. He was uh, writing this piece with John Bacchino uh, that very much came out of uh, – it was very much an idea that generated – uh, that Harvey generated uh, and connected with John, and they wrote it together. Um, and I fell in love with it. It was is um, such a a really simple story um, and a very personal one. Uh, and it's it's funny because it's nothing like some of the other experiences, events that I had produced, um, but it has the same seed, I think, the same sort of fundamental breath of being essentially theatrical, of being uh, a... a story that is transmitted live and there's something about experiencing it in a community and being in the same room with these people who are revealing themselves and their relationships to each other so profoundly um, that is what we do best in the theater and it really it expanded my what I my definition for myself, um, 
because it was not- aesthetically nothing like anything I had done. It was, in fact, probably more conventional in some ways than what you'd done in the sense that at least the proscenium form, the you know, it, it was more recognizable as a broad, as a musical. Let's not say Broadway musical, but as as a as a musical of this era. I I would say I'm with you on the proscenium piece, and it's certainly more recognizable as a um, a piece of theater. Um, I think there was a lot in it um, that was pushing the form in terms of how music functions in the storytelling um, and how um, what music is in a musical. And I know that that's something that a lot of people didn't respond to in it. Um, it is. It was something that for me uh, was deeply and profoundly satisfying that music, music theater, different from musical. Um, well, the reason I caught myself when I used the word Broadway is you just used the phrase musical theater, not necessarily musical per se. Is it a case that, again, we're, we're talking about real estate, but <laughs> is it in some ways that the venue creates expectations for what the experience will be and that perhaps that piece, because it was not precisely the well-made classic musical with an 11 o'clock number and all of that, that that there were expectations that weren't met and for the people who didn't appreciate the show, it's because they were, they were looking for something that this show never intended to be. Quite possibly. Um, or rather, absolutely. <laughs> um, space creates expectation. It's why the marriage of show and space is so important. Um, it's also why this show went to uh, – we, we put this show in the Walter Kerr, which is as well-known as a playhouse, a, a home of um, beautifully crafted, important plays. Angels in America, Doubt, Proof, Take Me Out, um, many August Wilson pieces. Um, that's – and so that – framing it was very deliberate for exactly the reason you're saying. Now, let's push it further. It's still on Broadway. Um, does that create – does music, whatever kind of music, on Broadway create a certain expectation? Possibly. Um, well, yes is the answer. However, I think that that – with each show that shows us a different kind of experience on Broadway, that continues to change. And I think for that reason, it's a deeply exciting time to be – creating shows on Broadway as well as seeing shows on Broadway as an audience member, um, which I am first and foremost. And um, I don't think that the Broadway musical that I, rather, I don't think that to say this is a Broadway musical and that is not a Broadway musical has meaning anymore um, for me. It very much used to, um, but now with each new show that, that pushes that definition wider, with each – Spring Awakening and You're in Town and Passing Strange and Avenue Q and Next to Normal and Fela and now American Idiot. 
each of these shows pushes that definition in a different way. It's almost like um, it's almost like kneading dough, right? You know, if it starts with a really tight ball and like that's all that's all it is, and you keep pushing it and rolling it and flattening it and and kneading it in different directions until now that's the new that's the new shape of it well let's pursue that not in the metaphor but in the reality uh in 2008 president obama was elected and uh, and came and, to a broadway show and came to a broadway show and in 2009 he uh, appointed Rocco Landisman, the head of Jujamson Theaters, as the head of the National Endowment of the Arts. And Thrilling. you ascended to the presidency of Jujamson Theaters. What is a Broadway show and what is not a Broadway show is literally, in some cases, a decision that you can make in the sense that if you agree to have a show in your theater, regardless of what Others may say it is therefore a Broadway show. So you're in a very different position. Um, and I, I, it's worth noting, and I did this, I looked at the five houses that you have and what's in them or about to be in them. American Idiot, A Little Night Music, Jersey Boys, Hair, and Fella. It, it suggests an artistic direction that one does not always think of in terms of how Broadway houses are booked. And some of those shows certainly were predated, you are becoming the president, but you were already part of the team there. Um, how much of that was conscious about trying to roll the dough out further? I'll go back to your metaphor. Completely. That's the joy of this. Um that we can give home, we can give platform, we can give light to um, to to shows like that that are that we've never seen before, feelings that we've never felt before, music that we've never heard before. On Broadway. That's the joy. As I prepared for this interview, obviously do our research, had some stuff sent by your publicity people, stuff that we dug up. Everything I found was dated September 8th or September 9th. (laughs) (laughs) And indeed, immediately upon your appointment, the producer of this program said, should we get Jordan Roth? And my response was, Let's give him some time. Let's let's see what happens. He can talk about what he might want to be doing. Um, so this isn't the hundred days report that the that a American president gets. But you're now six months into your tenure. Are there things that you've been able to put in place, or things that we're, or things that frankly you may have wanted to put in place and and weren't able to achieve in the way you thought you could. You give us your report on six months in. How's it going? Great. (laughs) Can you elaborate? Sure. You know, um, well, first I would say it's a marathon. Um, And I I also want to say... to this point, to, to, to your question, I'm very aware that these buildings, these theaters, these homes, it's not a mistake that we call a theater a house, um, have been here long before any of us and will be here long after any of us. So there's very much a feeling, a responsibility of stewardship um, which is very different than maintenance. I take it to be a 
an honoring of and an understanding of the legacy and a pushing it forward to the next step, to the handoff. Um, So none of this really is about me or any other individual. Um, It's about a continuum that we are a part of and that we um, have responsibility for at this particular moment. Um, Back to the specifics, as you recognize, and I really appreciate that, um, I'm very proud of our season right now. Um, And I think that... I, I, the, an aesthetic is becoming clear and I find that very gratifying. Um, and we are, and as I said, it's a marathon. We are, uh, as a company, um, exploring together our next chapter. Uh, and that organizationally, um, as I care very deeply about this group of people, that we uh, are collaborating together, uh, that's very satisfying. There are some inevitable questions. Now, you've already said that being the house is equally satisfying to being the producer. As of yet... It's different. It's different. But but you said but e- satisfying. Equally satisfying, yes, in a different way. Um, will we be seeing... Either Jordan Roth, the individual, or Jordan Roth as the head of Jujanson Theaters, actively producing shows. Sure, I don't have a we 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 don't have a um, set number of shows that we think we should be developing at any given time. Um, as I have, as I say, and as I feel for myself, our core business is operating the theaters, and we produce for love. You don't fall in love every day. Do you foresee the possibility, given that you have five houses, several of which now seem to have very solid hits in them, which restricts the ability to constantly bring in new work? It's, it's – on the one hand, it's a success. On the other hand, if you have – artistic goals and desires and there are indeed – if you do fall in love a few few more times, I mean you don't have to be monogamous um, when you're running theaters. You can only be monogamous to the extent that you have five of them. Do you, do you see a possibility where you might develop work that has to go to other houses or will it always be Oh, sure. You know, that, that does happen and, and has happened in the past and I'm sure will continue to happen um, and it happens – uh, among all three companies, certainly, um, uh, us, Jujamps and the Schuberts and the Nederlanders, uh, as well as some of the other independent uh, houses or, or spaces where shows can go. Um, you know, the calendars of shows, you try very hard to um, uh, to plan, but they often have minds of their own. And it has absolutely happened in the past and will continue to happen that you think you're developing a show for a particular house at a particular time um, and either that show is not ready yet or became ready early because, or late because of the creative process or creative team member schedules or the schedule of the house, the current tenant finishes earlier than you expected or goes later than you expected um, and and the marriage of the show and the house is not meant to be. Uh, and in that case, if you don't have another place in your company to put it, um, you very often will uh, put it in, an, in another company's house. And, you know, we I, I really value a very collegial relationship um, uh, and that certainly happens. It's often commented that Broadway is an ever-increasingly difficult environment in which to actually make theater happen, both because of traditions, because of rules, because of limitations of all kinds. 
now in the seat that you sit in, you you are a major player at the table on the side of the theaters and the producers. And as you talked about new models being the way you started producing, um, do you see the opportunity for new models of producing on Broadway, which will make it more possible for even more diversity of work? Absolutely. Um, I think, though, it's important to look for those new models in small places as well as big places. Um, sometimes it's just an adjustment of curtain times, sometimes, which you know sounds like a small thing but is actually quite a large thing. Um, uh, the, so my point is there's lots of different ways. Some of them are small, what, what may feel like small tweaks. Others of them are large reinventions. Um, um, but I, I absolutely think that they are there and I'm excited about them. But I would also say we are a collaborative form. So nothing is going to be one person. It can be small teams of like-minded people on one show um, which maybe becomes the experiment and then other shows join in. Um, but new things that will happen will be happening because uh, like-minded people are doing them together. And that's really exciting to me. Before I let you go, I want to bring up another project of yours. You were behind the start of a program called GiveNick, uh, GiveNick.com. Yes, GiveNick.com. Um, in which people who buy theater tickets through the GiveNick portal have the opportunity to direct, is it 5% of uh, the purchase price of the ticket to not-for-profit organizations, yes. many of which have signed up. What was the, the impetus for this? Because they pay the same amount of money and, can, and certainly can feel good, but it's not at a time when a lot of people were running around creating discount programs, you were creating a philanthropic program. What was the impetus? Well, the impetus really uh, was multifold, I would say. Um, from the show perspective, partnering with nonprofit organizations um, is something that shows have done f uh, for many years, absolutely. Um, but they've always been one-offs. It's always been so you're doing this show about X and you – partner with charities that focus on X and you work together in some way and that's the end of it. Once that show is finished, that, those, uh, that relationship and those uh, audience members who came into a show because of the charity or equally interestingly came into the supporting the charity because of the show um, – that that uh, engagement doesn't continue. So the idea was scale. The idea was all shows, all charities, and an opportunity for audience members to have an ongoing relationship with philanthropy, with giving, as they get their theater. Um, so we began conceiving it and it really turned into a win-win-win. Uh, the shows uh, get to sell tickets. The charities uh, raise money and in many cases raise new supporters. And the audience members get great value on their tickets. Um, many of the, of the tickets offered are at a uh, very good discount or – uh, extra value. So they're getting really good value on their purchase. Um, and the important value to them of supporting the charity of their choice at the same time. Um, and those three elements coming together, the shows, the charities, and the audience members, has made for a really dynamic program. Well, it's very creative and from everything you've done and you've talked about with us for the past hour, it seems like new ways of approaching not necessarily old problems but just old uh, old practices. So I say amen. Jordan, it 
took me six months to have the opportunity to say it, but congratulations on getting one of the great gigs in uh, the American theater. Thank you so much, Howard. And thanks for being with us today on Downstage Center. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow the American Theatre Wing on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of the Wing's fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. And today I should also say, or buy some theater tickets on GiveNick.com. And also you have the opportunity to support the Wing through GiveNick. Absolutely. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening. And no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.